Well, I'll encourage you if you brought a Bible, um, like I said in the prayer, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 19 this morning, and we are going to look at the whole chapter, so hopefully you don't have lunch plans. Um, you may have noticed the sermons were, have been a little bit shorter recently, but you didn't know this. I was just banking that extra time, and now I'm going to apply it. <laughs> but um, today, John chapter 19, like I said, we are looking at the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. And um, what we're going to study this morning is the darkest, most evil day in human history. Um, this is the day where the, the only truly innocent man to ever live was executed in the most gruesome way possible. And you, you can think about other dark days in human history. They, they pale in comparison to the death of Jesus. Um, not only was Jesus really the only truly innocent man that ever lived, but Jesus was God in the flesh and so the, the crucifixion is essentially the world rejecting God. And yet we're going to see on this dark day, God, before the foundation of the world, planned and orchestrated this exact moment for our salvation. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to read all of John 19 and I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible. And then what we want to do is talk about the physical aspects of the crucifixion. We want to talk about God's hand at work uh, in, in the death of Jesus. And then to end, well, what does it accomplish? What did the death of Jesus accomplish for us? So those three things. Um, so if you have a Bible open, John 19, uh, we're going to read the whole chapter together. So you can feel free uh, to follow along. It begins this way, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now Knowing that all was now fulfilled, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. And, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The reading of God's word. So I know that that's uh, a lot to take in, but what we want to do is just um, walk through first the, the physical aspects of what Jesus suffered for us. Um, in verse 1, we're told that Pilate takes Jesus and flogs him. 
um, which is interesting because Pilate hasn't even announced that Jesus is guilty yet. And so you go, why would, why would Pilate flog a man that he thinks is innocent? And if you actually put the gospel accounts together, right, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and the different gospels focus on different aspects of the crucifixion. When you put them all together, you'll, you'll understand and see that Jesus was flogged not once, but on two separate occasions before he was crucified. And the Romans, they had three different types of flogging. They had what was called the fustigatio, which uh, I just think, fustigatio. Um, they had the fustigatio, which was a less severe beating. And so what they would do is if you were accused, let's say, of hooliganism or um, property damage or just like lighter crimes, you would receive this type of beating. And basically what they would do, the Romans, they would beat you and then give you a severe warning and say, don't do that Again, and, and it was meant to deter people from doing petty crimes, right? It was a less severe beating. The second form was called the flagellatio, and this was a, a more brutal flogging for more serious offenses. This is the 39 lashes. If you remember in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says twice he received 40 minus 1 lashes, 39 lashes. That's this. That's the second type of flogging. And then the last is called the verberatio, which is just a terrible scourging of a victim. Most times victims just died. Um, they were stripped down and tied to a post, and then they were beaten by several torturers back and forth until the torturers got too tired to continue. And the whips had bits of bone and rock and glass in them, and, and it was designed to literally tear the flesh off a victim. And sometimes there's ancient reports of victims' bones and entrails exposed, and they would just die on the whipping block. So in verse 1, when it says that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, this is the, the least severe flogging. This is the fustigatio. This is the just the, the light beating to warn someone. And what I think Pilate is doing, because you go, well, that's so odd. Pilate, you haven't even announced that Jesus is guilty yet. You think he's innocent. So what I think Pilate is doing is trying to reach some kind of compromise with the mob. Maybe the crowds will be satisfied if we just beat up Jesus a little bit. Maybe a, just, maybe a little bit of blood will appease the mob and so not only is Jesus flogged, but we're told that soldiers uh, cram a crown of thorns on his head, meant to mock him, right? His charge is that he's the king of the Jews, and so they put a, a crown of thorns, and, and, and there's debate over what kind of thorns, and that doesn't really matter, but the, the whole purpose is that the crowns would sink into a person's face and distort their face and just make them a bloody mess. And so the guards did that and then also put a purple robe on Jesus. And then in verse, uh, uh, we're told that in verse 3 that they just mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. And then they would strike him in the face and hit him with their hands just to humiliate him. And then in verse 4 and 5, Pilate brings out this beaten bloody Jesus, crown of thorns, purple robe. He, he says, I, I think he's innocent. But then he, he parades Jesus out and says, behold the man. Literally, he says, look at this poor fellow. I, I think Pilate is trying to say, look at how pathetic this man is. He's, your, he's a threat to you. Look at him. He's nothing. 
But the crowd isn't having it, right? They're not satisfied that Jesus is just punished a little bit and they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And the Jews say, he's made himself the son of God. And we're told that Pilate, in verse 8, when he hears that, he becomes even more afraid. And we would go, well, why? Why, why is Pilate afraid if they say that Jesus is a son, the son of God? Well, in Roman culture, they were very superstitious. And they believed that there were divine human beings, right? If you think, if you think of uh, Roman mythology and things like that, they believed that. They believed that, that the gods could have sex with humans and create these kind of divine beings. And so Pilate is a superstitious man. And if you remember in Matthew's account, Pilate's wife says, have nothing to do with this guy. I had a terrible dream about him. And so now, not only does Pilate think, well, Jesus is innocent, now Pilate's scared. He's going, whoa, who am I dealing with here? Um, We're told that Pilate keeps trying to release Jesus, but eventually the Jews play the trump card, which basically they say, if you let Jesus go, you're not Caesar's friend. This is very smart that they said this because let me remind you from last week the Jews hated Pilate and Pilate hated the Jews and already there's recorded historical accounts where the Jews had gone over Pilate's head and reported him to 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 the emperor and so now what they're saying is hey it's essentially hey Pilate remember when we reported you before if you let Jesus go we're gonna do it again and we're gonna say that you're not Caesar's friend so, I mean, Pilate is now backed into a corner and, and he can't get out of this. And so we see him. He goes to his judgment seat and, there, and, and there's some back and forth which we'll come back to and the crowd is just continuing to yell, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And the chief priests who supposedly, right, these are the men that are the closest to God. They cry out, we have no king but Caesar. Right, so think about that. It's a complete denial of their faith. God is not our king. Caesar is our king. And so then we're told that Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified. In the other gospels, this is where Jesus would have received the most brutal form of flogging. The verberatio. So, So Jesus received a light beating. Mockery, crown of thorns, he was hit by the soldiers. Now he's been, he's been, uh, it's been pronounced that he's going to be killed. So now he receives the most severe form of flogging the Romans did. And it says in verse 16 and 17, then he's told to carry his own cross out to where he's going to be crucified. Now, there's some differences in the gospel accounts, right? Because some of you might be going, well, wait a second. I thought um, Simon carried his cross. But there's, there's no contradiction here. John just leaves that out. So Jesus carried his cross as far as he could, and then he was so weak, because think about what he's already been through, two severe beatings, and so he carries it, and then he can't carry it anymore, and the other gospels say that a man named Simon was told, now you have to carry it the rest of the way. And, and we have to get it through, it's not the whole cross, right? Lots of times we have the, the images of Jesus and he's carrying the actual whole T-shaped cross, right? That's, that's not what it was. All it was, the criminals had to carry the cross beam. The, the upright beam was already there. And so they would carry the cross beam and what it, it was meant to just humiliate them. You're carrying your own death device. You have to carry the thing that we're gonna nail you to. 
And so in verse 18, it says, in very little detail, which is interesting, it says, there they crucified him with two others. And so Jesus is crucified between two other criminals. Um, crucifixion, if you're not aware, it's, it's the most horrific way that you can die. Um, criminals were attached to a cross, cross, usually by nails, through their hands or their wrists, and then one through their feet. And the reason crucifixion was so terrible is that the, Ro- the Romans designed it to last for hours, maybe even days. And how you actually died if you were crucified was that you uh, asphy- asphyxiated, you you couldn't breathe because you, your, your body is literally slumped over and you're so weak that every time you want to breathe, you have to push up on the nail through your feet to take a breath and it's so painful that then you just slump down again. And the Romans, they would give you a little chair attached to the cross, not out of pity. They did that so that it would last longer. Right? The Romans weren't going, oh, I feel so bad for these criminals. Let's give them a little chair to sit on. No, they were cruel and they wanted their victims to suffer longer. And so they would give them a little chair that the, they could sit on as they were hanging on a cross. And, and you were crucified on the main road. Literally, if, if in our day and age, a hundredth and a hundredth. That's where they would have crucified people. So that the most amount of people can see, and the Romans did this to deter people. If you mess with Rome, that's what's going to happen to you. Um, You were almost always crucified naked. And and oftentimes, we have this view of uh, criminals crucified way up in the air. That's not the case. You were often crucified at eye level so that people could look you in the eye and mock you and spit on you. Um, And you, like I said, you, you might hang there for days. Until wild animals ate you or birds pecked away at you. Like, I don't want to gross you out, but we have to have in our minds, this is the cruelest form of execution imaginable. And so Jesus is crucified. He's nailed to a cross. And we're told that Pilate then writes a sign to hang above Jesus. And this was often very common. What your crime that you did was written on a sign so that people would look at a, a person crucified and say, ooh, robbery. Well, I'm not going to try and and rob anything because look at what happened to the last guy. And so Pilate writes in Aramaic and in Latin and Greek, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the king of the Jews. We know that Jesus was hung naked on the cross in shame because the soldiers divided up all of his clothings and they even cast lots, right, for the last piece uh, because they didn't want to rip it up. It was such a beautiful garment that they actually, you know, they gambled over who, who gets the last piece. And we're told that finally, after receiving one last drink, Jesus cries out, it is finished, and he dies. And often, uh, the Romans would just leave dead criminals on their crosses to just rot. But because of Passover, we're told, and the, the Sabbath, and, and they, they call it a high Sabbath because uh, sometimes the Passover would then fall on the Sabbath and it was like a super holiday, super holy. And so uh, the Jews asked, okay, can the soldiers break the legs of criminals to, to speed up the process of dying? Because we got to celebrate Sabbath and we got to celebrate Passover and we don't want these criminals hanging up on their crosses and, and kind of ruining it. And so they break the legs of both other criminals and they come to Jesus and he's already dead and a soldier pierces his side with a spear to make sure he's dead. 
And then we're told two, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, ask for Jesus' body to bury him. They prepare this mixture of spices, and that was very common you, because, because they wanted to kind of uh, ward off the stink of a dead body. And so they would uh, kind of pack these spices around a, a dead person to make it smell at least somewhat bearable. And so these two men do that, and they wrap Jesus' body up, and they place him in a new tomb in a garden And so here we have the Son of God dead and buried in a tomb. I mean, this is what, for for 19 chapters, this is what we've been building to, right? Jesus has said this over and over and over. This is why I've come. This is why I've come. And now we see it happening. And when you read the account, I mean, it's heavy. it's, It's very easy to see evil at work. You see a dark, twisted, broken, depraved world that hates God and hates Jesus, and it looks like evil has won. I am sure that the chief priest went, nice, we did it. The threat is now gone. Jesus is dead. So you see evil at work. However, in chapter 19, you, you also see God's hand at work all throughout the chapter. This is not a case of this terrible evil that, that God was unaware of and he went, oh no, what am I going to do? And he pivoted and he tried to clean it up and well, okay, maybe last minute I can use this terrible evil and somehow bring about good. What we see in chapter 19 and through the rest of scripture is God achieving his redemptive purposes in the midst of chaos and evil and death. And I, you see this in two ways in our chapter this morning. One is the amount of prophecy that is fulfilled in the death of Jesus is staggering. And then two, in the events themselves, you see Jesus still in complete control. There are eight specific prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in John chapter 19. Uh, and so I want to show you them to, to see that Literally thousands of years before this took place, God had already planned all the details of this. The first prophecy is that Jesus remains silent in front of Pilate. If you remember, uh, uh, Pilate is asking him, where are you from? But it says, but Jesus gives him no answer. In Isaiah 53, 7, this is what it says, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So here's Jesus standing before Pilate and he is not opening his mouth. Secondly, when when we see the crowds and the chief priests and the religious rulers yelling away with him, crucify him. In Psalm 2 it says this, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against who? Against the Lord and against his anointed, against Jesus. So literally a thousand years before Jesus and the crowds are yelling, crucify him, the psalmist says, Why are the rulers plotting against Jesus? The fact that Jesus is crucified between two criminals. We're told in two spots, Isaiah 50 through 12, because he poured out his own soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, numbered with the sinners, with the guilty. And then in Psalm 22, 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle 
encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. So there's a direct prophecy that Jesus' hands and feet will be pierced and he'll be in the midst of of evildoers. The fact that the soldiers took his garments was prophesied about. Psalm 22, 18, they divide my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years before it happened, the psalmist said, this is what they're going to do to Jesus. Um, Jesus drinking sour wine before he dies. Psalm 69, 21, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Um, the fact that Jesus' legs weren't broken. Psalm 34, 20, he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. The fact that Jesus' side was pierced to, to make sure that he was dead. Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of J- Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him. The fact that Jesus was buried in a rich man's grave was prophesied. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So in our text, you have eight specific prophecies given about the most minute details of Jesus' death. Like in some cases, literally a thousand years before it happened. And you go, how does that happen? That a thousand years before it happened, the psalmist is led by the Holy Spirit to go, not one of his bones will be broken. Who are you talking about? So you see the the hand of God working out his plan of salvation. Um, Not only the prophecies, which is just incredible on their own, but Jesus himself remains in control all the way up to his death what you, what you don't see is a Savior who is pathetic and not in control and panicking. You don't see that in Jesus. You see a, a, a God who is in control. In verse 10 and 11, Pilate, right, he t- he, he's afraid because they said that Jesus is, is the Son of God. And he's fearful about that. And he's asking him, where are you from? And Jesus won't answer him. And Pilate essentially says, like, angrily to Jesus, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I, Jesus, I can either release you or I can crucify you. I have the authority to do that. And what does Jesus say? You don't, you actually don't have any authority, Pilate. Unless God gave it to you. The the authority that you have, Pilate, is borrowed authority. Pilate, you're not in control right now. Right? And, And God says the same thing to every world leader who has ever ruled and ever will rule. Do you really think you have authority? You have no authority. So, so notice what Jesus, Jesus isn't saying, you're right, Pilate, oh my goodness, please release me. He goes, Pilate, you're a joke. You have no authority. The only authority you have is because God's given it to you. He's in control. Um, verse 14, we're told that it was the day of the preparation of Passover and we're told very specifically that it's the sixth hour. And you would go, well, why did, why did John include those details? Right there. Right in the midst where, where Pilate is about to pronounce uh, that Jesus will die. Why does John say it's the day of preparation for the Passover and it's the sixth hour? And here's what's amazing. At the sixth hour on the day of preparation was when all the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in Jerusalem. It's not a coincidence that that exact moment Pilate says, okay, 
killed Jesus, the true Passover lamb. Um, even the sign that Pilate posts above Jesus, I mean, it's amazing. We go, okay, so Pilate writes a sign, but do you see God's hand at work in three different languages? Aramaic was the language that was most understood by the Jewish population. Latin was the official language of Rome. And Greek was seen as the international language of the whole empire. So that every person possible knows that Jesus is king. Isn't that amazing? No one can say, what, is the, what does the sign say? I only know Greek. I don't know Aramaic. No, it's in all three languages. Here is Jesus, the king. That's why the chief priests say, um, can we change the sign? <laughs> that he said he was the king, not that he's actually king. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Right, so here you have being declared to the world, here is the king. Um, even in the midst of excruciating pain, Jesus cares for his mother. He arranges that the, the disciple whom he loved, which is most likely John, the writer, he arranges so that the disciple would take care of Mary. In that culture, it was the firstborn son's responsibility to make sure that his mother was cared for. We can assume, most likely, that Joseph had died already, or, or else Jesus wouldn't have said anything, because Joseph can take care of Mary. So we can assume, most likely, that Mary is a widow, and in that culture, the firstborn son, it was his job to make sure that his widowed mother was cared for. So think about that. In the midst of the most excruciating pain possible, we have Jesus thinking of others. Right? Like making sure his mom is cared for. And then he cries out, right, after he has received his, his drink of sour wine, he cries out, it is finished. And it's one word in the original language, tetaleste, and it's not a cry of defeat. You have to understand that. It's not him going, ah, it's finished. It's better translated, it is accomplished. It denotes the idea of someone that has carried out a, a task and someone who's fulfilled an obligation like if I had an obligation a legal obligation to do something and I had done it I could say okay it is finished right I've done the task that I was obliged to do and so Jesus on the cross says it's accomplished it's finished I've done it and then notice in verse 30 that it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit no one took Jesus' life from him. He willingly gave it up for us. Like the point is this, not only was, Jesus wasn't just killed, but he died in accordance with God's plan. Right, he was the one that bowed his head and then gave up his spirit. It doesn't say that then all of a sudden he just died. No, Jesus willingly gave his life. He says, I've done everything that I came to do, now I can die. So evil and darkness thought that they were executing a threat to them, but in reality, they were pawns accomplishing salvation for mankind. So what then did the death of Jesus accomplish? Like, it's, it's fair to say, 
right? Jesus clearly physically died. Anyone, and there, there was, there was um, talks like this in the early church. Well, maybe he didn't really die. Maybe he just kind of swooned and fainted, and that's why. He, didn't, he wasn't really raised from the dead. He just, he just kind of woke up after he fainted. You'd have to be a fool to believe that. Look at what he went through. Jesus physically died. And we've seen that it's the hand of God orchestrating it. So here are four things that the death of Jesus accomplishes for us. There's probably more, but here's what we see in our passage. Four things. First, the death of Jesus is an expression of God's love for us. If you remember John uh, 15, 13, Jesus said this to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What Jesus was saying is there's, there's no greater act of love that you can do than, than willingly dying for someone. That's the greatest act of love. And so then, as Christians, how do we know that God loves us? And the answer is look to the cross. God's love for you is objective. It is not subjective. If someone said, how do you know that God loves you? You don't just say, well, because I just kind of feel like he loves me. No, 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 no. God's love for you is objective. It's flesh and bone. It's the cross. It's more than just butterflies. You can say, I know that God loves me because look at what Jesus went through for me. I mean, 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says that much. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Do you want to know what love is? This is it. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. Well, how do we know? Well, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Jesus is the greatest expression of God's love for you. Secondly, it is a sacrifice for your sin. Um, all throughout the gospel of John, Jesus is presented as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you remember, even before um, he's really done anything, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus delivers us from death precisely by delivering us from our sin. And so because of our sin, all the way back in the garden, because of mankind's sin, justice would require our lives. We are in debt. We are enemies of God. We deserve death. But God's mercy means Jesus came and he offered himself in our place. Um, human beings are regarded. We're sinners that are justly condemned by God. And because God is just, he expects that the penalty for our sin, it has to be paid for. He would be unjust if God just said, well, you know what? Never mind. Like that would be an unjust God. God is just and so our sin has to be paid for and yet God is merciful and so he allows our penalty to be paid by Jesus who dies in our place. Even in the first John 4 passage when it says that Jesus was a propitiation for our sin, the word propitiation means a sacrifice that appeases wrath. So on the cross, think of this, not only is Jesus in the most physical, excruciating pain possible for a human being to go through, on top of that, the judgment and wrath of God for your sin is being poured onto him. He is our sacrifice. Thirdly, the death of Jesus is his victory over evil. 
Um, In John 12, Jesus said this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's Satan. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The death of Jesus was his victory over evil. And so you have evil and depravity and wickedness. You have Satan throwing everything he has at Jesus. Jesus was flogged twice. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was hanging naked on a tree. And as Jesus died and gave up his spirit, it was a death blow to evil. I mean, Colossians 2 tells us that. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and the demonic realm and wickedness, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I mean, as Jesus dies, he is defeating evil. It is his victory through his death. And then lastly, the death of Jesus is a revelation of divine glory. Um, this brutal death, is, it reveals to us God's glory. It reveals the glory and the majesty and the wonder of our great God. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, The word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. I mean, this is why Pilate parades Jesus out and says, Look, look at this, look at this fool. Look at this man. This is, this is pathetic. That's why the world looks at the cross and it sounds like foolishness. Really? Your Savior, God, died on a on a cross that seems so foolish but Paul says that those who are being saved by God those whom God has opened their eyes to see the truth we look at the cross and we go now that's power and so the death of Jesus it reveals God's glory to us it was a demonstration of his power to save us so to close, and I know um, that, I mean, it's, it's, it's heavy talking about this, and I think that's good. But two things to consider as we close. For those of you who are here and are not Christians, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus is to believe by faith that this happened. That Jesus actually died for him, for, for you. And becoming a Christian and following Jesus means that you decide to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we'll get to next week, for your salvation to say, yes, that is true. I believe it. I accept it. I love Jesus. That's what it means. And for those of us who, who are followers of Jesus, my, my prayer, and it's been my prayer this whole week, is that we would never tire of hearing this. Um, lots of times they've done studies and, and the, the word they use is that Christians kind of become inoculated to the gospel. Um, especially if you grew up in the church because it's just kind of like, yeah, I, I know this story. I hear it every Easter. I hear it every Christmas. I just kind of, I know it. I know the advance. I know the details. And, and you can kind of become numb to it because you've just heard it so often. But I have to stress to you, this is it. This is all we have 
And my prayer for myself and for you is that you would never tire of hearing this. This is our salvation. This is what it all hinges upon, that Jesus actually died, that his death was actually a payment for us, and that we're going to see next week that he actually was raised from the dead to secure our salvation. So would you never tire of hearing that? Would you never say, man, yeah, I know, I've heard it before, but that every time we hear it, that our hearts would just be stirred up with affection for Jesus, that he would do that because of you. Because of you and me, Jesus had to go through this, and yet Jesus willingly went through it for you. That we would never tire of hearing that. So Jesus, I just thank you for your word. And, and God, it, it, it feels like a, a heavier Sunday because it is. We are studying and, and learning about the, the darkest day in human history and that's not just hyperbole, that's, that's true. This is the darkest, most evil day that ever took place because on that day, the world rejected you, Jesus, and executed a truly innocent man. And so God, I just thank you that that's, that's, not, that's not just what happened. It wasn't just this great act of evil, but God, you were orchestrating your plan of salvation for us. Prophesied sometimes thousands of years before it happened. That all of these details would take place because God, you, you planned it. That Jesus, this is the greatest act of love that has ever happened. That Jesus, this was your victory over evil. That Jesus, this was you sacrificing yourself for our sins. That, that Jesus, this was you showing your divine glory as you hung on the cross. That as people mocked you and said, well, here's the king of the Jews. No, in reality, that's true. You are the king. And so Jesus, I just pray for all of us, those in this room maybe that don't know you yet, Jesus, none of my words will ever convince someone. Holy Spirit, it has to be you that opens someone, someone's eyes and softens their heart that they go, yes, that is what I've been looking for. That is true. I want to believe that by faith that Jesus, you did this for me. And then for those of us who know God and are following you and we know the gospel, oh God, would we never tire of hearing it. I pray that we would never become inoculated to the gospel where we go, yeah, 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 I know what happened. But that each time we read of it and hear it, that it would stir our affections for you, Jesus, that you would do this for us. And I, I just thank you, even though we're pausing here in the text, I thank you that Jesus, as they put you in the tomb and you were buried, that we know that that's not the end of the story. That you weren't some great religious leader that happened to die like countless other fakes throughout history. No, Jesus, you were raised from the dead. And so when we talk about this, we always talk about the cross in light of the resurrection because that proved that you are who you say you are. So we worship you, Jesus, and I just pray that we would leave with our, our heads looking heavenward going, what a savior. What a God we serve. 
And so we just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.